You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am uh, super excited to be joined today by Dr. Uh, Broderick Sawyer. He is a clinical psychologist, diversity consultant, workshop facilitator, meditation teacher, reverend, and activist. He has a specific focus on healing the stress of oppression using the psychology of compassion. Dr. Sawyer obtained his master's and doctoral degree from the University of Louisville, completing his internship at Stony Brook University Counseling and Psychological Services. Dr. Sawyer offers diversity, mental health, and performance-based consultation to organizations and businesses, teaches mindfulness and compassion-based meditation, provides lectures, workshops, and a variety of customizable training. And the link to his website and information about him and his full bio will be available on our website. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Sawyer. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that uh, mouthful of an introduction I sent you. I felt bad. I heard you read, I was like, dang. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you should, you should, you should see some of the ones I get. They're pretty long. And I'm like, I hope you don't mind. I cut it way down. Uh, so yeah, so thank No, it was perfect. What you sent me was perfect. Um, so thanks for joining me. Uh, and and uh, as a caveat for, for, my, for my listeners really quick, um, I'm going to put it out there early. Uh, Dr. Sawyer is not an RN. Uh, and I want to, because uh, most of my guests on the show are, not all of them, but most of them are. Uh, and I want to kind of put a um, little bit of info out there of why I asked you to come on the show. I heard you speak at the Minority Fellowship Program uh, that the ANA has along with SAMHSA. Uh, and um, it, there was so much, uh, like there's so much, so many pearls in there, and it was so relevant to nursing that I said I need to put you, I need to bring you on this show and help uh, not only share what 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 you, what you have to say, but really introduce you to the world of nursing. Because uh, if nursing doesn't know you, I think nursing should know you. Uh, so uh, definitely wanted you to come on the show, and thank you for accepting the invitation. Um, but I usually start my with my guests. How'd you get in the world, started started in the world of nursing? But how did you get started in um, in doing the work that you're doing? Because a lot of your work focuses on um, uh, diversity and healing. And one of the big words that I that that I heard you talk about was the historical and the trauma of uh, of individuals with diverse backgrounds. Um, so how did you get started in this world of saying, this is what I want to concentrate on? And if yeah. you can just talk us through that. Yeah, I think in a really broad way, um, I had always been oriented towards helping. And that was a big role that I had in, in my family. I come from a family uh, really of underdogs. Dad was a first responder. 
struggled a lot with uh, trauma, um, you know, PTSD, depression, substance use. Um, and that takes a, a huge toll on, a, you know, just situations like that. Um, it takes a huge toll on the majority of folks who work in blue collar backgrounds. So my role um, really was, became comedic relief um, advice. It just became a love language for me that I um, began to use and function through. So it became something very natural orients you to becoming a psychologist. In terms of race, um, I watched my father try to be seen as good enough in the eyes of his very racist job for most of my upbringing. My father, the difference between him and I would say the majority of other folks maybe in that situation, he was uncompromising in his, um, they call him a pit bull at his, at his job. He's uncompromising in the, you will respect me um, type deal. And in a world with racism as a black man, that is very hard to follow through with. So I watched him not bow down to racism. And I watched how that um, in the one hand protected him against racism, but on the other caused significant emotional trauma for him. Yeah. So he was, you know, burning it on both ends. You know, he's trying to fight, you know, while no one else is really fighting with him. So my main question with um, keeping, keeping one's uh, mental health safe, despite an anti-Black, uh, you know, anti-ethnic minority uh, society and globe, how do you keep your mental health intact while also fighting it? Because yeah. my daddy wasn't going to bow down because that's not a, a helpful response. You just sort yeah. of, you know, it's easier. It's less stressful just to play the game, you know, or but if you fight now, you turn into, you know, a Colin Kaepernick type where now we're going to take all your resources and da, 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 da. Yeah. so that rock in a hard place. That is the source of all of my work. Um, it is to help people learn how to embody on an emotional level. What I believe Malcolm X, as well as Martin King, um, Angela Davis, uh, I think Toni Morrison is someone we don't talk enough about. Just that attitude of, I love myself and you can be racist towards me like all you want, but I'm going to go ahead and not seek validation from a society that pretends racism doesn't exist. If I try mm. to identify with that, I'm invalidating the pain of racism. So I can't soothe racism or see it clearly so I can avoid those environments. You know, so for me, it became this just real-time analysis that went way beyond just my educational background and went into uh, the spiritual activist, um, you know, revolutionary kind of realm. I had to look to revolutionaries throughout history. How did they handle this and keep their emotions intact, be able yeah. to differentiate their motivations from the motivations of anti-blackness, anti-color, anti-colored folks, um, and live a life of meaning and actually find peace without internalizing those negative racist messages. And then, um, make it not too long of a story, then I started to get into uh, Buddhist tantric practices. Buddhist tantra is essentially like holding the idea and principles of self-realization and enlightenment in your mind at all times throughout all activity. And they describe it rather than 
going from one state of awareness and traveling to another, it's almost like recognizing and fanning the flame on your enlightenment that's already in you. Mm. So throughout each, it's almost like uh, for listeners who are familiar with Christianity, it's almost like what would Jesus do? But every single moment, just like that. So if I embodied those principles of mindfulness, of emotional peace, of love, of compassion, I learned to let myself flow with whatever it is I was feeling in order to find emotional truth. So in a moment I could feel angry, but then I just kept being angry and feeling that way and followed that within myself. Then I could see pain. And then once I saw pain, then I saw love for myself. But the Mm -hmm. mind naturally, when we allow ourselves to flow, it leads to happiness when we allow that but we have to address pain. And that's where um, my work is becoming now. It's all about emotional intelligence and the psychology of compassion. And psychology of compassion is a psychology of spiritual enlightenment. That's what it is. It's all hard opening. Um, We're just, um, I'm putting it in more formal psychological language um, to to just make things more practical and bite-sized for the fast-paced society. that we, that we are in. And I think that that style of um, Buddhist Tantra, of Tantric practices, you right. hold a principle in your head. You can choose anything. You know, it doesn't have to be something that's Buddhist. It can be self-love. It can be, I want to be more confident, whatever it is. But if our everyday actions and behaviors reflect our morning affirmations, now we're becoming the method. Any form of enlightenment, you have to become what you're aspiring to do. And that's where embodiment is very hard, especially when we have oppressed social identities Mm -hmm. Um, or in social identity. I don't just mean, um, you know, black people or um, the gay community or women. I don't just mean that. I also mean oppressed. And I used um, identified as blue collar upbringing on purpose because that is another form of oppression. It's not just folks in poverty. It's folks who are in that middle space and can sort of see the glamorizing of capitalism and you can be rich too and glamour and you're sort of chasing that and chasing that, believing that you can get it, which is actually causing more stress and more shame towards yourself. So yeah. I can, you know, and this is, I, I identify that anyway, anybody making under 300 grand is sort of in this space, um, which is a large part of the nursing community, just the same. Yeah. Um, and then we talk about helpers um well I'll, I'll i'll save that piece but in terms of how i got to where i am today that's the most succinct <laughs> i can <laughs> <laughs> yeah i appreciate that uh, i mean a lot of like 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 you mentioned a lot of things as you were as i've heard you before and i and i and, I, and i'm listening now uh it makes so much sense because you know when i translate that not only with my own up- upbringing um i'm i'm iranian by birth um, uh, most of my work, most of my life, um, for, uh, however, I did not live in Iran. I lived in Iran for a few years. Uh, my, my parents traveled a lot. Um, and then I came, you know, we were, we were well off in Iran. And then my mom and I, um, came to the U S uh, this is pre Gulf war and pre nine 11, all that stuff. So, but we came here with not that much money. Um, so we lived in like a studio apartment. I slept on one couch. My mom slept on another couch. Um, and we you know that's kind of how we lived until, you know, I decided I was going to go into the military. My mom went back to school during that time, you know, so, you know, some of the wealth uh, accumulated after that point, right. For her, 
uh, and you know uh, she just retired you know um uh, so you know she had she had a good uh good run with with you know her career and the money that she made and she was able to help her family and things like that um she still gives me a little bit of pocket money once in a while so that's another <laughs> another mm-hmm. thing she's mother's still, love yeah mother's love exactly but but at the same time you know uh i saw so we you know post uh first gulf war and post 9-11 like i left the military uh, and 9-11 was happened five days after i left the military wow. uh so my neighbors stopped talking to me like i was getting wow. weird looks on the streets and something i was not at all used to yeah. right yeah. um so um so some of the stuff that you know you're, you're talking about that you know I, I like i relate to in a way uh just because uh, i was on the receiving end of some of that stuff and i uh, I shared with you before my two girl, even though I lived in a world that was not like that at first and it became like that for me personally, uh, my girls have grown up um, in that world of people looking at Middle Easterns with a different, different look and different view. Right. Um, so I can appreciate it. And that whole idea of capitalism, um, it's, it's so true because uh, we do, we do uh, aspire and social media is kind of, you know, mm-hmm. made that a bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there, there's a there's a lot of lot of truth to what you're saying. Um, now, as as far as um, as far as your own personal work, um, one of the things that uh, I want to get a little bit more into with you uh, is is um, is the diversity because nursing struggles with this. Uh, nursing has, you know, historically uh, female dominated uh, white uh, um, and still is, uh, still is from, you know, um, and, uh, we are, you know, so we don't have a diverse population, uh, where we talk about it a lot, um, but I'm not sure if we've made any significant movements, uh, in diversifying the pop, the, the nursing workforce. Yeah. Uh, plus we're in a healthcare system, which is, mm-hmm physician dominated right uh, we yep. have that piece and there's another uh, another sort of the power dynamics that happens there uh, which mm-hmm. is a whole different uh, aspect but i really wanted to talk to you about um, um, the diversity within the nursing workforce um, th- that's something i think from a nursing perspective we have control and power over uh, and we should be doing a better job at it we're just not there uh, and I think over the last year, uh, with uh, with everything that's happened with the Black Lives Matters movements, uh, and I don't even like to calling it to call it the Black Lives Matter movements. I think that movement has been around for decades. <laughs> we just, I think we just, uh, for some reason, I come from this from a novice perspective, right? Uh, like last year was a was was I think the true wake up call for me as to uh, what can I do and. Um, because um, I, like I said, I if I if you give me a form, I check white on the box of you know that's the only choice that I can kind of fit into when I have mm-hmm. to check a box. Uh, so I always so last year was the wake up call for me of saying, what am I doing, uh, and how am I feeding the beast, or and what am I mm-hmm. doing to um, to not do that right? Like how can I be a better ally? Um, so I want to really talk to you about that piece and your thoughts around uh, diversity in the workforce and what we can do better as a, as a nursing 
profession or institution? Yeah. First is to understand the trickle-down effects of ideology. So nursing profession, just like the psychology profession or just me walking outside and grabbing my mail. So my entire experience is dominated by cultural um, norms. Okay, so let's talk, let's identify what the cultural norm is around race, diversity, equity, inclusion. The cultural norm that is dominating collective consciousness right now is what we call colorblindness. Mm. Colorblindness isn't, I don't see race because if I see race, I'm bad. Colorblindness is, I don't want to even the playing field and acknowledge my capacity to cause harm as a white person or acknowledge how these systems are built from the ground up to support white people and make it harder on people of color. Um, I want to avoid all of that because it makes me emotionally uncomfortable. It makes me feel like a bad person. So I'm going to pretend to not see it. So colorblindness is a reflection of what we call in the psychology biz, shame avoidance. You can't tolerate the shame. So you look away and you're looking away and ability to look away depends on your power in the situation. If you have all the power, you don't have to look at it. That's why critical race theory is being Mm. beaten out of Congress. That exact reason. Um, And it also, it makes um, black and brown folks uncomfortable when we start to acknowledge racism because it means acknowledging pain. So we as a society, we have a gross, gross underdevelopment in emotional intelligence, self-soothing, compassion. Because those capacities are underdeveloped, we don't know what to do with what makes us uncomfortable. We could be talking about race. We might as well be talking about death or just whatever makes anybody uncomfortable. Um, Me, the Giants, and will they win? Oh, good Lord. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Very uncomfortable. So emotional intelligence it takes that to tolerate truth and acknowledge truth. That is what we have a problem with in our society and in America in particular, we are one of the most dramatic and sensationalizing countries in the freaking world. So us like trying to make things look nice, uh, everything's fine. That just reflects (laughs) our lack of emotional awareness and ability to tolerate um, truth, you know? So in terms of how we, how we, work through diversity issues in particular institutions, especially in healthcare, you can see exactly what I'm saying in an abstract sense and apply it to almost any system. There's a bunch of white people who are in charge administratively at hospitals, right? They control all the practices, their ideas about reality are being projected onto the systems. And if you're not, if you don't have experiences of racism, it will not be integrated into the system that you create. So we just think, oh, we need to hire more diverse people. Okay, it looks good. But then we don't focus on our retention programs, which actually include the feedback from black and brown people and people from diverse backgrounds in the healthcare system of, oh, when this is racist or that's racist or da-da-da-da. So now, even when we get feedback on how racially sensitive our environment is, if the people listening don't have emotional intelligence or embodied colorblindness, they can't even integrate the darn feedback. So now the system doesn't change. And I just have to, you know, basically eat crap and keep experiencing racism or quit my job. So this right. rock and a hard place, I think a, a good, it's a huge problem that I'm describing. I don't want people to get discouraged by the problem. I want you to see the problem and see the first steps in the solution. Right. The first steps in the solution, in my, in my opinion, is seeing this playing out, acknowledging in ourselves, acknowledging our uh, discomfort to certain topics, 
as a reflection, not of us being bad people or the thing we're talking about being bad, but seeing, oh crap, there is no K through 12 emotional intelligence training or classes. I can't tolerate I need to work. This is a skill. So right. once we demystify, decode that piece of things, then when we're talking about race, we get uncomfortable. We're like, oh, this is because of motion and da da da. Okay, cool. So then we can talk about it, but we're informed about what's happening in the moment. That's why not just acknowledging history and critical race theory, it's not just about that. It's also acknowledging um, our critical education theory. I just made that. That's not real. But um, it's this idea that we don't focus on emotional intelligence. And we're just starting to, as a society, even know what that means. I talked to my depression era grandma sometimes. She's just like, what are all these kids complaining about these days? And <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's because it's not in the social, in our social water, so right. to speak, to acknowledge that piece of things. Um, and as far as how we can in nursing in particular and develop systems that account for this, it starts with acknowledging that we need more diversity. All right, step one. Step two is you need as equally as aggressive as your hiring and your recruiting programs are, you need an equally aggressive and robust retention program that actually integrates the voices of the black and brown and diverse people who are in those particular spaces. And I'm not just talking about the people who've been there for 20 years, because it's another thing that can happen in diverse communities is you have gatekeepers who aren't integrating the voices of the, the young folks who are doing work. I see this happen a lot. Yeah. Um, so similarly, it happens in systems. Well, oh, well, you know, um, so-and-so Damon or, you know, or, or Gladys or whoever it is that's a black person who's been there, you know, for 20 years. Well, they say everything is fine. So da 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 right? So no, no, no. We need all of the perspectives integrated. If there is pain being experienced by a being because of racism, it is a problem. And when we make it our problem as an institution, the feelings and mental health on the end of our treatment, if we make it our, our problem and centering compassion as law, that will undercut a lot of the social ills that we see today in society generally, which will then impact all of our people, which will then impact all the systems that people are in. So now we also use and weaponize systems as a way to uh, detach our, ourselves from it. We right. make up the system. If we change ourselves, the system changes. We don't want to change. So we just pretend, oh, it's just the, the, it's this resignation. Yeah. Um, I think that's all comes from my athletic background, too. Um, it's all right. Well, you suck at basketball at uh, Broderick. So go in the backyard <laughs> and grind it out until you better. You know, it's that simple. And yeah. um, I, I think this because we don't want to live in a uh, society of isolation, but that's the way that it is right now individualism yeah. is the way it is so the solution unfortunately will include a lot of that so one of the best thing i think people can things that people do develop that emotional intelligence for yourself um and then apply it to the spaces that you're in yeah um, so yeah yeah long story short uh we need recruitment but we also need retention that actually is attuned to yeah. the emotions and experiences of the people in it yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I, I, everything you're saying, I'm trying to like relate to in my own, some of my own experiences. Being a veteran, a lot of times doors open up for us. 
uh, because, oh, you're a veteran, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, you get an extra point or a star Mm -hmm. by your name. I'm like, hey, Uh come on in. And Uh once you're in uh, and you act like a veteran, they're like, oh, yeah, we don't like that. (laughs) You know, Uh, so some (laughs) of the. No, like, I'm like, so like I've had to over the last, you know, I still tell people I have been out of the military for 20 years um, and I still tell people I'm in transition from being in the military to being a civilian because for 10 years uh, I was enculturated in the military uh, system. And then I come out in a civilian world. They're like, oh yeah, you can't act like that. You can't talk like that. You can't uh, swear like that. You can't, you know, like all this stuff. That's like, the, mm-hmm. so I had to unlearn. I had to put like six months before I got out. I made it a point of not saying anything, any bad words, right? Like I had to untrain my brain, but it's a, it's like a mentality that's there uh, and acceptable and everybody uses it and nobody thinks of it that way. But in the civilian world, it doesn't look like that. Uh, like in the military, sometimes we get, as we're having normal discussions and working things out, we'll get loud or we'll like, you know, use our hands a lot and we'll mm-hmm. get very passionate about a topic, but then we move on from it where in the civilian sector, sometimes that's like, Ooh, is he being aggressive? Is he being, <laughs> you know, like, is we need he- to stop and process this. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I've, I've ended up in HR more than once because, you know, people yeah, have yeah. thought that I was, I'm like, I was just talking, you know, like normal talk for what is, you know, what you would, you would see as a, in a veteran community is not seen as normal talk in the mm-hmm. civilian sector. So, so when you talk about retention, like I said, institutions bring veterans in but then don't aren't familiar with the culture the veteran culture right um so that become that becomes problematic and i see it with other other ethnicities and things like that where people are like oh i'm not sure what to do with that should i say that should i not and it comes a lot from i think people's own um i'll I'll just say own ignorance right because we just simply don't know and we don't take the time to understand Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that may have uh, that's probably one of our biggest things and something that i've worked on since like i said last year really i've kind of taken i'm like i need to know more yeah right uh what can i read how can i uh uh, elevate how can i be an ally um to to the people that i that right now I'm like saying, okay, I need to be a more active participant in this uh, for the positive and making changes. Um, so um, I'm not necessarily the type to go out and protest. Uh, that's just not me, but what else can I do, right? So I didn't go to any, especially what uh, I hate to say, it, but what LAPD was doing out here in, in the LA yes. area. Um, I'm like, I have two little girls I got to provide a, for them. It's a decision. And it's, and it's a decision I, that I made, but I'm like, what else can I do? Uh, one of the things that I made a conscious effort on is make sure I have uh, some of the work that I'm bringing into my classroom are uh, the work of um, uh, Black and Hispanic nurses that are scientists that are putting up some excellent work, going beyond the textbook, so to say. Uh, what else can I do? Uh, my podcast. I made a conscious effort to have a diverse group of individuals in the podcast because I want it to be more holistic and not just the you know, not just the individuals that we tend to normally see in the world of nursing. Um, So how can I, so providing that platform, I said, what else can I do? And it was kind of uncomfortable for me last year, and I've become more comfortable with it over, over time, but actually bringing the top of topic of racism and health together in the classroom, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like openly talking about it. Um, I, so not hiding behind the text uh, that was written mm-hmm. five, six years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. So how do we do? How do we? How do we do more? Uh, and I really want to talk to you about that whole the, the allyship of somebody who yeah. is not black and not Hispanic. How can I be a better ally? Yeah, um, I would say it starts with first we need philosophy. All great things start with chosen conscious philosophy. So the number one thing for folks who hold uh, privileged identities, the number one thing is understanding you are not a bad person. The conditioning that you were brought up in hurts other people. And if you don't pay attention and understand that conditioning, you will, not maybe, you will hurt other people. And now here again, we're centering compassion. We are making it center because at the end of the day, humans, what we really are at the core, when we're just relaxing, we're not fearful or anything like that, we're completely relaxed. There's a feeling of interconnection, love and unity and peace. That is what is at the core of our consciousness. Now, society doesn't set us up in a way to achieve that. You know, I think psychologists could design something like that. Um, But in essence, all you have to do as an ally is remember that that is what you are. And your job here in this life is to realize it in your everyday life situation. So this doesn't mean simply being compassionate to people of color. This means becoming a compassionate person with yourself, with your kids, with your partner, with your friends, with every damn body, you are compassionate with them because you are that way. That's where I think diversity work and allyship work is missing a lot. It it turns into checking boxes. And that's what people do if we don't know what we're doing. And it's not bad to be intentional, right? Just like you were saying about your coursework, you know, checking some boxes. But, But in essence, you have to feel what the other is feeling mm. in, if you are able to compassionately attune with them. Yeah. And shame in particular, um, as a white person in particular, let's just use the, the example of white, white, white folks and African-Americans. So your ancestors as a white person, they had to shut down their emotion of guilt or shame to justify what they were doing. Right. Now, when you are accused of being racist, that same generational conditioning is coming up and you're avoiding the shame just like your ancestors. If you don't want to be blamed for what your ancestors did, don't keep doing it, right? Right. And then again, that (laughs) reflects the conditioning. It's not your fault, right? Just like you not having the emotional awareness to settle with your shame and make sense out of it, that's not your fault, right? We need to center becoming compassionate. This means increasing your emotional intelligence, right? paying attention when you are in situations where your privilege might come out. So for me personally, I think this is what, um, what makes my teaching, what it has made my teaching more interesting to me, at least. Um, I sit in the middle of one very oppressed identity, black person, and then one very privileged identity, which is a cisgender, very masculine six foot four man, man. So, so that, yeah. So, I had to ask myself over time, Broderick, do you want to continue to hurt women 
because you have the social power to take up space and women are socially punished for taking up space. So they won't even challenge you to keep themselves safe. Just like when you're in a room full of white people, the same experience happens to you. Yeah. So my question for myself had to be, do I want to continue to hurt women unconsciously? The answer is hell no. So right. now I have to learn and listen and experience the pain of women so that I can understand and mirror and feel what they're feeling. If I know what suffering feels like for myself in my own life, when I'm causing suffering, I can, what I like to call emotionally perspective take. For white folks out there that are listening, you don't want a perspective take with your mind. Perspective taking with your mind is like, oh, well, you know, I said this, that doesn't hurt me, so that doesn't hurt you, right? right. That's intellectual. We yeah. need the language of the heart. We need heart. Again, this goes right back to lack of uh, in, in education and emotional intelligence. Right. The, the perspective taking the heart is very simple. It's either, I understand that joy that you're feeling, or it's, oh, I understand that pain that you're feeling. You feel pain and you see pain. Oh, it's pain. I know what pain feels like. You might as well be me. Now I can extend compassion to you because we share the same experience, but right. it's perspective taking with that heart, not with the mind. So even if you, um, and just as a compassionate person, you're going to want to alleviate pain and you're going, going to want to promote joy. Yeah. Life, reality becomes very, very simple when we embody just those two principles. The logic of the heart is very simple and all the words and ideas around it just obscure you know, that yeah. inherent wisdom because that's what's most true. That's going to be on their, their deathbed, what they're thinking about. Um, they're not thinking they're feeling. Yeah. That's yeah. And I, and, you know, too. yeah, yeah. And I, and as you're, again, as you're talking about this, I, I, I'm trying to internalize all this. Like I said, I'm coming from this from a, I, I'd like to say not again, a novice perspective of, I think my, I will share my own thing and uh, feel free to correct anything stupid. I may say, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, <laughs> man, but, we all say something stupid. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, from my perspective, I think it comes from my own uncomfortableness uh, because, you know, it, what you're asking is something that from a societal perspective is not something we practice. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think anytime I see something that I can't, like, I can't, I can sit down with somebody who talks like, you know, like listening to you talking about your experiences. Uh, I'm, I, I sometimes feel guilty about saying, I know what you're talking about, right? Uh, because I don't know what you're talking about because I haven't had that exact same experience. Like I can try to relate to it a little bit from, you know, like for me, like um, even what happened recently uh, with the whole, the bombing in Afghanistan, for example, um, somebody through my website sent me a message that it was my people that did it. Uh, I mean, something like that, like out of nowhere, out of the blue, you know, not kind of discounting the fact that I served in the military. I have friends in the military. I've lost friends in the military. Um, so somebody to like send that message to me through. So it was somebody, the only thing I can think of, it's somebody I know. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that's what the painful part for me was, is like somebody I know yeah. because they know my website, they know my background, they know. So somebody went to my website and sent me that message. And, you know, so the only thing I can do is kind, kind of, even though I know if, 
my experience and your experience are completely different because if I'm driving down the street and you're driving down the street and we both get pulled over, I usually, I don't have to worry about anything, really. I'm probably going to get a ticket and I'm going to be pissed off about it, but I don't have to worry about what a black person would have to uh, uh, go through. Like I would never be able to, you know, um, feel that whatever it is that you may be feeling, right? Um, so I think that's part of where my biggest, sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do comes from is because I haven't lived as an individual yeah. with darker skin, right? I, I don't have that light of a skin, but it's pretty light. So yeah. so I, I think that's where my uncomfortableness at any time I have to talk about it. So I a lot of times I force myself because I want to get in that, arena as i am right now i'm very uncomfortable <laughs> I'm, i want to that i want to be i want to get myself into that discussion because yeah. it's from my own understanding right yeah, um, yeah and i think but it's not an easy easy space to be in mm-hmm. yeah yeah so, i guess yeah i guess i would say um it's about knowing the heart's truth yeah. without directly experiencing it And this is where I think the practice or my practice of Tantra kind of comes in. Yeah. I trust that there is one oneness, spiritual, physical oneness. I trust that. And I try to interact with reality in such a way that reflects that without freaking anybody out. Yeah. Um, So when a person is describing pain to me, I try to very consciously um, feel that pain with them. I try to commune with them in their experience energetically, not by saying, oh, it's not about words. Sometimes it's asking questions, but mainly it's a presence. It's an emotionally opened, attuned feeling that witnesses this suffering. The discomfort one has, um, it bubbles up until it spills over. So, a lot of folks have trouble getting to that spillover process because we're socialized to resist the flow of emotion. Right. Right. But if we let that flow and actually feel what another is feeling, we end up weeping for them. This was my experience of uh, trying to um, decondition myself in terms of gender, which involves reading a lot of bell hooks. And let me tell you, bell hooks is like, I had to like think of like an example, right? Because I think about like, what white people might feel like. I think, is this like what it feels like as a white person to watch like 1962 <laughs> Malcolm X give a talk? Like, is this what it's like? Because she was just like ripping me open with a lot of this stuff that I'm like, no, that's not true. But it's like I could feel my resistance to giving up my male privilege just by reading with her. And I had to get to this point of discomfort until I just started to weep for women and what they go through. And we never know when this moment is gonna happen. We need to keep exposing ourselves to the authentic narratives and suffering and pain of those we don't understand and let that Mm. flow. So in terms of um, it's black folks, uh, documentaries like I Am Not Your Negro, James Baldwin, um, the 13th documentary, um, we need better emotional attunement, but we need to expose ourselves to those things. Yeah. And then we need to practice being more emotionally open and flowing in our everyday life with everyone around us, with things that may not be 
super uncomfortable. You just, this is just, you know, weight room stuff, you know, don't start with 500 pounds on the bar. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I, I think this is a, this is a great segue. You do a lot of work with meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does that uh, blend into your, to your work? And uh, as a heads up for our, for our listeners, we're going to hopefully practice a little bit of this uh, with you. Yes. Um, so meditation is one of the most adaptable, accessible, and affordable ways to gain uh, emotional intelligence and compassion and awareness. Because in essence, when you meditate, all you're doing um, is you're uncutting, you're undercutting our entire society. Our entire society is based on sensation. Now, next, 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 next. What you're doing is you are grabbing the emergency brake and then uh, stopping all the way which is going to feel pretty freaking uncomfortable at first. So we always start with shorter meditations. But as you close your eyes and you let your thoughts run and you let your emotions run and you allow with a sense of non-reactivity and non-judgment, then when difficult situations come up, say racism is happening to you or someone is describing racism to you, any emotional discomfort you can flow with it. Why? You practice flowing with your experience every morning. So your, med- your formal sitting practice of meditation, you become uh, the meditation mm-hmm. in daily life. And when emotions come up, you sort of observe them, you breathe, you slow down, you don't resist. So meditation teaches non-resistance to our emotional experiences. And we don't resist our emotional experiences eventually if we do that all the time that's what enlightenment is like Mm. literally but there is a lot of resistance baked baked into our cultural you know norms which prevents that but meditation if you just want and it's it's on a spectrum you know enlightenment self-actualization happiness right it's on a spectrum but for this if you want to develop more emotional intelligence sitting with yourself and just watching as this detached observer no emotion or thing can surprise you in your daily life when you have that kind of awareness. I mean, the last thing I'll say is um, meditation, practice meditation over the course of leave, it was a two months in the study. We did a research study and they measured people's brain structures before and after two months of meditation. They found that the amygdala, the emotion center of the brain was smaller only after two months of meditation. So less reactive. Um, The hippocampus, the memory portion of the brain was larger. And the um, insula, which involves compassion, perspective taking, larger. And then the orbital frontal cortex, which has to do with your awareness in the present moment, it grew. So these aren't just, you know, you know, throwaway kind of, you know, um, hippy dippy changes. No, your brain structure literally changes. Having meditated and taught meditation for about over six years, um, I can feel these these changes in in my perception and my feelings and my awareness yeah. over that over that amount of time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I I, I in one of my classes I incorporate. It's called the one minute meditation. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's just a little YouTube thing that's, that's, uh, and I have them practice that for a month, uh, and, nice. uh, get a lot of good feedback from, them. and these are the, I mean, these are nursing students that can't find like 30 seconds in a day. So I force them to do that one minute a day. And a lot of them actually stick with it, uh, afterwards. So, um, so yeah, 
so yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm on board. I'm on board with the whole uh, meditation piece. Um, did you want to practice it? Yeah, um, let's let's do it. For, and as, yeah, yeah, and as people follow along here, we're gonna close our eyes, but I want you to keep in mind that these practices are intended to be integrated into your life when your eyes are open. The only reason we're yeah. closing our eyes is because we're new to practice. Yeah. Okay, this intensifies the practice, but we want to be able to do these same things in this meditation in our everyday life. Okay, This allows and, us to flow. And, and if you're listening while you're driving, uh, don't close your eyes. Uh, <laughs> save, it, save it for when you get home. <laughs> you use the, use the force, Luke. <laughs> just kidding. Don't close your eyes. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, um, so, all right. So, one of the first things we want to do is close the eyes if we're not driving and finding a comfortable position in your seat. Okay, you can be laying down if you want, you can be sitting cross legged on the floor, you can just be sitting in a regular chair, but whatever your position. You want to sink into it and start to breathe very deeply. Okay. So this deep breathing needs to be very intentional. This is a start of meditation. I encourage you to breathe all the way in, inflating the lungs all the way without making yourself uncomfortable. And then at the top of the breath, release. So we breathe all the way in, and then once we've breathed all the way in, we let go and we breathe all the way out. Okay, so you want to inflate your lungs like balloons, and then deflate them like balloons. But don't be forceful with yourself. It should be gentle according to your own lungs capacity you need to fully cycle your breath to turn down the volume of cortisol or the stress hormone in your body this is instead of decreasing your stress by not doing stressful things this through the breath is a way of cutting the fuel of stress so deeply breathing one piece I want you to integrate here. Now on the out breath, instead of just releasing the breath, I want you to also release the breath and any tension in your shoulders, in your neck or jaw, muscles in the face, your hands, wherever there's tension, breathe all the way in and then we let it all go. And as you let go, I want you to sink deeper into your body, deeper into the sensation of gravity. Okay, don't resist gravity. Just allow your body and your consciousness and your breath to settle into and ground itself right here. This is done through breath. This is done through non-resistance. You're safe here. You're sending the message to your body, your mind. It's safe. 
This is our foundation of meditative observation. You're feeling relaxed, you're feeling good. You can do that form of meditation. Just that if you would like to. Now that the ground and the foundation is set, I want you to take one more deep in breath. And then let go. Sink in a little bit more. And after that last breath, now let your breath resume at a natural rhythm. So no more deep breaths. Just let your breath breathe however it wants. You should feel kind of like a rock or boulder right now or a tree. Just still unmoving. You're letting your breath breathe. You're not controlling. What I want you to now do is begin to look directly at your stream of thoughts. But I don't want you to accept or reject any of these thoughts. I want you to watch your thoughts as if they belong to someone else. This is how we create a meditative awareness. Watch your thoughts. Don't accept, don't reject. It's almost like you are standing on the inside of a waterfall. Water is just falling down. You're not getting overwhelmed by it. Let your thoughts run, don't control them. Don't say anything back. Be the observer. I'll leave a little bit of silence here for you to practice this attitude and spirit of observation. Don't follow the trail of breadcrumbs that the mind sets. Watch. Let it flow. Allowing, don't resist. Let it flow. See how random it is. One thought comes up, there's a space, and then another one comes up. The more we let it flow, the more obvious the space becomes. Now we're not getting so obsessed with our thoughts. We're not getting so obsessed with the clouds because we can see the sky clearer. And one last piece of this practice, I want you to ask yourself, silently to yourself, who is watching these thoughts? Who is this watcher that sees? Just sit with that question. It 
This is designed to create space between you and the flow of thoughts. It's one thing to have your faucet on. It's another to take your head from out under the faucet. Take one more deep in breath. Nice big exhale. When you're ready, if your eyes were closed, you can open them back to the room. There we go. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I feel like I should be paying you for this session. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, you're you're good, man. This is my <laughs> this is where my being, where my flow leads me. That's awesome. my my uh, health propaganda. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Um, uh, before we end our session, uh, any other thoughts for our, or words for our listeners? Yeah. Um, I would say that if, if you, after that meditation, feel a state of balance or relaxation, or your thoughts are less stressful or whatever, um, positive outcome that you had, if you practice meditation, you can feel like that when you're not meditating, okay? It's something you have to trust in and understand, um, but, but it is certainly possible. I guess the last uh, thought that I have or what I want to share is um, we don't need an anarchy to solve the problems in our world. We need a revolution of consciousness. We need consciousness. And the number one person, you know, that you can control in terms of consciousness is developing is yourself and the people who look up to you. Um, so you can embody everything that I'm saying. Um, and then you essentially become me. Um, and we all have the same wisdom inside of us and we can learn from each other. So we need to learn more how to embody our sense of wisdom and knowing and sitting in our human truth, um, which is desire for happiness and to minimize and alleviate suffering in our lives. If we center and organize our worlds, societies around that, um, we're going to be all right. Um, and I appreciate you. And I can also uh, send you um, YouTube links of uh, meditations um, that I have for my, my channel. Um, it's a good mix of of different stuff. It might offend some people, but hey, you know, everybody's got an opinion. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate you having me on, man. Hey, I appreciate you uh, for giving us your time, your uh, your wisdom. Uh, it's been fantastic. I'm, I'm glad we were able to connect and hopefully we'll stay connected. Um, we have been listening to uh, Dr. Uh, Broderick Sire. Uh, his bio, his the link to his website, uh, and the links to his uh, some of his meditation uh, meditations on YouTube. And I think I saw them. I saw a few on like uh, some of the uh, like Spotify and things like that as well. So uh, we'll have those links available for you guys. Uh, thank you again for joining us, and uh, we'll we'll uh, stay in touch, and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com 
That's www.alirtayyeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.